All right, so uh, we, I don't know that I, I don't think I told you this, but this has actually kind of been a three-part series. Uh, there may be more parts, I don't know. Um, uh, so this is really kind of part two of last week's Stay Thirsty. Uh, remember I told you there was one portion of that that I found so interesting, uh, I was going to take a whole week to do a rabbit trail on that. And so this is that. So if you want to pull your notes out, you can feel free to follow along. Um, and here we go. Uh, the title is Appetite for Pleasure. I figured that was provocative just in and of itself. How often does the church talk about our appetite for pleasure in a positive way? Well, we are this morning. I want to submit this to you as being intuitively obvious. We have a God-given appetite for pleasure. Not just that our flesh has an appetite for pleasure like, we, like it's a bad thing, we have to overcome it. That we have a God-given, that it's something God gave us. He gave us an appetite for pleasure. Now, I say it's intuitive, um, and I think I can prove it because of this. If I said, for example... Uh, today, we have a need to do some cleanup around the church, and, and we want as many of you as you can to stay after church for an hour just to clean with us. Uh, statistically, I would get 10 to 20% of you to stay, and, uh, and that would be a good turnout. I'd be impressed with that, right? Now, if I said, on the other hand, we, we have this problem, uh, we have a bunch of extra pizza and ice cream, it's all fresh, <laughs> plus... There's a local uh, massage school that uh, they have about 30 students that need to practice back rubs for an hour. So we need you to hang around for an hour for pizza and ice cream and back rubs. How many of you think we get more than 10 or 20 percent? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You understand it's in us. We volunteer for pleasure. I don't have to exhort you to volunteer for something pleasurable, right? And so I want you to see that I believe it's a God-given thing. It's important that, because if we don't realize God gave it to us, we'll start thinking, well, you know, my desire for pleasure is bad. I just need to limit that. And, you know, and we end up just, uh, our only options for pleasure are, are in the world, and we just have to choose good ones and not bad ones. Well, that's not true, I don't think. So uh, it begs the question, and again, you understand when I'm asking these questions, um, they're to make you think. So you should ponder and think about these. If we have a God-given appetite for pleasure, will God satisfy that appetite? Or do we have to look for just uh, acceptable pleasures in the world to satisfy that appetite? Will God satisfy our appetite for pleasure? Now, I think the answer is a resounding yes. And I want to talk about that more today. Because um, if that's the case, then there are competing pleasures. There are competing pleasures with the pleasures that exist in him. And some of them are good. Uh, going to a movie with your family, good pleasure. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, today is my sister's birthday. There'll be cupcakes later. I'm going to have a cupcake. Good pleasure. Nothing wrong with that. Some of them are evil. Some of the pleasures are evil. And some of the evil ones draw us, don't they? Uh, so the issue is not just choosing, 
between good pleasures and evil pleasures and making sure we pick good ones. If God wants to satisfy it, then it's as wrong to let evil pleasures supplant God satisfying it as it is to let good pleasures supplant God satisfying it. Does that make sense to you? You guys follow that? Okay. So I want us to think about that. Another statement I'm going to make, these are my kind of the things I'm building, the uh, premises I'm building this teaching on. I believe not only were we given by God appetites for pleasure, that we were made to marvel. And I think uh, we'll see that in a minute in scriptures. That we were made to marvel. That there's something in us that desires marveling. And again, will God satisfy? Will God satisfy our desire for marveling? And there are competing marvels with God. There are good ones and there are bad ones. For example, uh, is it good to marvel at God's creation? I think so. Is it good to marvel at God's creation so much that we begin to worship God's creation? No. Romans 8 talks about that. That leads to bad things, right? And so there are good and bad marvelings that will compete with marveling that is based in God. So I want to talk about these things today, about our appetite for pleasure, our need to experience pleasure, our need to experience marveling, and my belief that God will satisfy these needs because he's given them to us. Amen? Amen. So let's start. There's a couple places in 13, in, sorry, in uh, Revelation chapter 13 and chapter 17 where some interesting marveling goes on. So I want to look at these. The first one is the beast. Now this is, this is a very special guy. He's backed by the Antichrist. He has his own number. You guys remember 666. Uh, so the beast is very impressive. And uh, it says that people are going to take the mark of the beast, uh, which is not just, I want to be able to eat, so go ahead. It's, uh, it's actually a voluntary worshiping of the beast. So uh, people get afraid they're going to accidentally take the mark. I'm like, no, 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 it's way more than just, oops, I let him stamp my hand. Uh, it's a desire to worship this beast, right? Yeah. That seems crazy that people are going to worship the beast, doesn't it? But it says it right here in Revelation 13. Uh, so what has happened just before this is it has appeared he has taken a mortal wound, and yet he either does not die or is healed or is resurrected or something. I think he's imitating someone. And it says, and all the world marveled at the beast. All the world marveled, and they followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. That would be the Antichrist. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? There is nobody like this guy. We're going to worship him. Because of what? They marveled at him. Right? So what I want you to see here, very simple principle, marvel produces worship. Their marveling at the beast led to them worshiping the beast, led to them taking voluntarily uh, the mark of the beast, whether they get food that way or not, because they want to worship this one they're marveling at. Right? Okay, that's a valid, that's going to be a valid earthwide temptation in that day. Let's skip a few chapters further. In Revelation chapter 17, John the Baptist, not sorry, not John the Baptist, John the Apostle, the other John, 
uh, is having this revelation and he's being shown around heaven or the future or whatever by an angel. And I want you to pay attention to who is marveling here. This is the Apostle John. Who is marveling and what he's marveling at? He sees, he is shown a woman riding the beast, which we would learn later in the chapter, uh, represents a city, Babylon. Uh, so he's called the harlot of Babylon. And uh, he marvels at her. He says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. And the angel says to me, why did you marvel? Bro, what are you doing? Why are you marveling? I'm, I'm showing you the revelation of Jesus. How'd you get fixed on the harlot of Babylon? But he did. Isn't that wild? Why did you marvel? And then he goes, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. Then we learned it's about cities and kings and all that stuff. And once it explains, it doesn't, it doesn't sound that great. Now, two things I want you to get out of this. One, it's really easy to be captivated by competing marvels. It's really easy. I fight this all the time in my pursuit of, as we talked about last week, maintaining thirst for God. There are constantly other opportunities, other competing marvels, other competing pleasures. And I'm constantly facing choices. And you are too, right? And so John falls into this. He's captivated by a competing marvel. He marvels at the woman riding the beast. And the way the angel deals with this, I love this. He goes, why do you marvel? Let me explain. Because understanding demarvels. You guys ever gone to see a magician before? And, and periodically through the crowd, people are going, how do you do that? How do you do that? And, it's, it, and you marvel, right? Now what if you went and you went, how do you do that? And he went, well, here's how I did it. And he explained it and he showed you the mirror. And here's how I did that when he showed you the trick thumb. And here's how I did that when he showed you how he distracted you with this hand while he did something else with this hand. And by the end of the show, have you had as good a time? No. Because the marvel was all taken away by the explanation, wasn't it? And so that's what the angel is doing here. He's going, look. There's no reason to marvel. Let me just explain what's going on. And, uh, and he does for the rest of the chapter. Now, here's what I want us to get out of that. If understanding demarvels, if God wants to uh, meet our need for marveling and understanding demarvels, what will happen if we stay safely within the borders of our understanding of God? What will happen if we uh, never challenge our understanding of God? If, we, if we've uh, got the right answers, we know the right stuff, and we go, that's it. I know the answers to the big questions. Uh, I have all the understanding I need. I, and, and that's Christianity. It's just understanding these, these few doctrines and concepts, and I'm done. What will happen to marveling? You guys follow me? And so... Are we in danger of a church that understands just enough to have lost their marveling at God? Yes. Right? And that's what I want us to think about. Paul, in Ephesians 3, does something really interesting. He says in his prayer, 
He says, I want you to be rooted and grounded in love. It's really important that you have a strong foundation in the knowledge of the love of Jesus for you. He says, in fact, I want you to know the width and length and depth and height of his love. I want you to be continually exploring the boundaries of his love for you. And then he goes on, he says, and he calls this a love that passes knowledge. You know what that means? How many of you fully understand how much God loves you? Paul says you're never going to. It passes knowledge. But you can continually, for the rest of your life, be exploring the width and length and depth and height. You can continually be marveled at the love God has for you. You can continually go, I thought it ended here and it goes further. I thought it ended here and it goes further. Do you understand what Paul's saying? So Paul's saying, I want you to explore the depths of something you'll never get to the end of. Not, I want you to understand and be done. And so I think love is probably the most important area for us to do that. But there are all kinds of areas in God where we need to do that. Where we are in danger if we settle for understanding and we lose marveling. Amen? So I said last week when we were talking about staying thirsty, I listed four thirst stealers. And one of them I said I'd talk about this week is boredom. Boredom is a thirst stealer. It may sound amazing to you. But I believe some people go to church and yet are bored with it. I'm just saying. It could happen. Now, this begs questions. And again, these are questions for us to think about. First question is this. Is Jesus boring? Could be. That could be the problem. It could be that Jesus is boring. We should ask that question and explore it. We'll look in Scripture in a minute. But if, in fact, the answer is no, he is not, then should his church be boring? No. Probably not. So is it his fault or our fault? Well, let's find out. So let's answer the first question, is Jesus boring? Now, I just am playing with a couple of words here in the Bible. There are all kinds of places you can go with this. We could probably talk about this for a long time. But... Uh, since we're talking about marveling and wondering and pleasure, I, I'm looking at those things. So the first thing is his name is literally wonderful, root word wonder, right? I love this story in, uh, in Judges 13, the angel of the Lord, you'll figure out who this is, this angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, I think was most of the time Jesus. Um, the angel of the Lord shows up and begins to tell Samson, I'm sorry, tell Samson's parents about the kind of child they're going to have and what they need to do because he's going to be a Nazarite from birth, don't give him any wine, etc. Right? In fact, mom couldn't have any wine. So they're very impressed at the child they're going to have and they said, hey, uh, by the way, angel of the Lord, uh, what is your name just so we can tell people when we tell them this crazy story who told us about this? And he says, why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? Now, uh, he's not, I don't think, saying, uh, why do you ask my name, because it's a really wonderful name. Uh, I think he's answering. My name is wonderful. The reason I think that is because we see it again in uh, Isaiah 9, 
Uh, every year, Linus reads this at Christmas, right? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful. It's the first one in the list, isn't it? It's the very first one. So what's Jesus' first name? Wonderful. Why? Because he's full of wonder. Is it his problem? Probably not. Okay? So I thought, well, let's play around with wonderful some more. And I, I looked up wonderful works. And the Psalms are full of praises to his wonderful works. He does wonderful works. His name is wonderful. He does wonderful works. So then I looked up marvelous because the scripture says he does marvelous things. Now I would encourage you to look in your notes at this point. I'm not going to read all these, but it might be fun for you to go through them sometime. Look at how long that list is of places in the Bible where it either says he does marvelous works or uh, it's someone marveling at something he just did. Most of those are in the Gospels. There is a bunch of marveling going on in the Bible and a bunch of it in the Gospels, right? So maybe there should be a bunch of it going on here. Just saying. His name is wonderful. He does wonderful works. He does marvelous things. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? So I do just want to read two of these. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, this is, of course, the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, they're waiting in the upper room, uh, tongues of fire, mighty rushing wind. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit. They prophesy and begin to speak in tongues. They go outside. They're speaking in tongues really loud. It's a feast time, so there's people from all these different nations that are there in Jerusalem for the feast. And they're not just hearing people speak in an unknown tongue. They're hearing people speak in their native tongue. In all of the, and it lists half a dozen different languages. They're hearing people speak in their foreign languages from the countries they've come in from, right? Do you ever wonder what they're talking about? It tells you, Acts 2.11. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. He introduced the church with the discussion about the wonderful works of God. I love John 5.20. This one, we should let this sink in. Jesus is speaking here. He says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does and will show him greater works than these. Why? That you may marvel. Why are you showing us greater works, Jesus? Well, you need to marvel. There's a built-in need for you to marvel. So I'm going to show you some greater works so you can marvel. The Father loves me. He will show greater works than these that you may marvel. Does that, does that work? We need this, don't we? We need marveling. Otherwise, we're in danger of that boredom thing. Now, so I think just the, that quick, brief look at that, we can probably say it's not Jesus' fault uh, if we're not marveling or if we're bored. So uh, what should the church look like or be like in that case. And there's, a, again, a lot of places we can go, but I just want to look at this one psalm, uh, Psalm 36, because it, it's so clear about pleasure, about our appetite for pleasure, about how God wants to satisfy our appetite for pleasure, about how he gave us that appetite, 
All right? So let's look. Psalm 36, verses 7 through 9. He says, How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. Why do the children of men trust God? Because he's so scary? Because they're afraid to go to hell? Because of his precious loving kindness? That's what it says. The people who get a revelation of how incredibly loving you are, are putting their trust under the shadow of your wings, right? And then he goes on. He says, they are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. Rhetorical question, don't have to raise your hand. Are you abundantly satisfied with the fullness of God's house? Are you abundantly satisfied with the fullness of God's house? Looks like we're supposed to be. I want to be. I want to be abundantly satisfied. Abundantly sounds like real satisfied, not just, you know, a little satisfied, doesn't it? They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the rivers of your pleasure, for with you is a fountain of life. In your light we see light. It's a lot of what we talked about last week with thirsting. Remember we talked about John 4 and how he wants to give us living water, a fountain of life to be in us. He gives them to drink from the river of his pleasure. Again, rhetorical question, don't need to raise your hand. Are you drinking from the river of his pleasure? Are you drinking from the river of his pleasure? This is a good question. We should evaluate these things, not in a feel guilty way, in an opportunity, in an, in an invitation way. Am I drinking? Can I drink more from the river of his pleasure? It seems to be his intention, doesn't it? Of course, you guys know Psalm 16, 11, in your presence is? At your right hand are? Pleasures forevermore. Now, Ephesians says we can seat ourselves in Christ Jesus in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. So if we put that with Psalm 16, what should be there every time we seat ourselves in Christ Jesus in heavenly places? Yeah, joy, pleasure. Pleasures are at the right hand of the Father. So are we experiencing the pleasures of the Lord? The rivers of pleasure that are in God. The church, I believe, is supposed to provide this. I believe we are supposed to help one another uh, come to the place where we experience the pleasures of God. Now, let's get to the problem, the potential problem at any rate. And it's this. We won't stay bored. We were made for appetite, for pleasure, we were made to marvel. If we are bored, we will find something to do about that boredom. You don't have to be taught this. How many of you parents have ever heard your kids say, I'm bored. Find me something to do. Right? And that's when you throw them out of the house. <laughs> Go find yourself something to do. We won't tolerate boredom, will we? The problem is, Sometimes we don't have the patience to have our boredom satisfied in the pleasures of the Lord. And so we will engage in competing pleasures. And that really is the choice. The choice when we find ourselves bored 
is are we going to engage in competing marvels and pleasures or are we going to pursue the surpassing pleasures that are in him? Now, maybe you've believed that the world's pleasures are better than God's pleasures. That is not true. I guarantee you that the pleasures that are in God surpass the best pleasures that are in the world. But they are not as easily obtained as the pleasures that are in the world because they require intimacy with God, whereas uh, the pleasures that are in the world are often freely offered as a trap. Right? I'm telling you, there are surpassing pleasures in God and there are competing pleasures and marvels. And we are continually choosing between them. And if we choose the competing pleasures, we'll never get to the surpassing ones that are in God. This is the problem that Israel ran into just before they went into captivity. Listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 2. I really want you to get this. Verses 11 through 13. He says, Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? Because, of course, we know Israel had worshipped the Baals and Chemoth, and they offered their children in, to the fire and sacrifice. They were going after other gods, which was the, the issue that God had with Israel. And he says, But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. I gave them glory, and they chose lesser pleasures. They chose unprofitable things. They chose things that did not give them life. And then, catch this, be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate. Guys, he's saying, when you see this, when you see this happening to God's people, it's time to be really concerned. It's time to be very, very afraid because of what's coming. When we see God's people doing what he's getting ready to talk about. If we see God's people doing this, God says, heavens, be afraid. This is not going to end well. What is this thing we're supposed to be afraid of? It says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. So he's saying, I have offered them surpassing pleasures to drink from the pleasures of the river of living water. I have offered my people fountains of living water. And what they've said is, no, thank you. We're going to make our own fountains out of our own pleasures. And he says, these are cisterns that can hold no water, that ultimately won't satisfy. As he said in John 4 to the woman at the well, if you drink from this water, from this pleasure, You'll be thirsty again. This won't satisfy. If you drink the water that I give you, it'll be a fountain of life springing up in you, and you'll never thirst again. But we have to choose. I want you to catch how serious this is, guys. He says, be very afraid. When you see a people, when you see God's people choosing lesser pleasures over the surpassing pleasures of God, choosing to hew out for themselves their own cisterns, their own sources of life, their own cure for their boredom than the fountain of living waters that God provides. You seeing this? It's right here. I'm not just making it up. Now, this is a choice. This is a choice between the 
surpassing pleasures of God, which obviously he wants to give us freely. Remember we learned last week, he gives them the water of life freely. We just have to thirst. We just have to want it. Or choosing uh, the shortcuts of the pleasures of this life. And again, I'm not saying I'm having a cupcake later. Uh, have, have the pleasures that are in this life. I'm not talking about, and this isn't talking about um, eliminating all earthly pleasures from your life and only getting pleasure in God. It's talking about what is your primary source. Uh, has, has, has something overtaken, even a good thing, overtaken the place of finding your pleasure in God? To the point where his issue is not that we have pleasures in the things of this life. He's given us all kinds of good things to enjoy in this life. The issue is those things begin to crowd out enjoying him. So we're no longer enjoying him because we're satisfying all of our desires for pleasure and for marveling in the world. And he needs to be our primary fountain, our source of life. Does this make sense? So I don't, it's not an either or thing. It's seeing him as the source of these pleasures. And so it's a choice. Uh, and I love this. In, in Matthew 16, 24 and 25, Jesus says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Most of us, when we think of that verse, we hear in great big bold letters, deny myself, take up my cross. Right? right. Which is true. Did you hear how it ended? It ended with finding life. So here's what I want you to get. Sometimes we have tried to find our pleasures in God and uh, because it, it takes building intimacy with Him. Uh, we haven't immediately succeeded and we've gotten, we've lost hope and we've gone on to other things. So I want you to see that it starts with denying ourselves, but it ends with a fountain of life. It ends with finding life. It ends with pleasure. In other words, I'm not denying myself and taking up my cross just to earn heaven points. I'm denying myself and taking up my cross to follow him, to get to him. I'm losing my life so I can have his life, his fountains of living water, his rivers of pleasure. It's not saying deny yourself, earn it. It's saying deny yourself, choose the greater pleasures. That's what that passage is saying. It ends with finding life, finding the river of life, right? And that makes the denying myself sound a lot more fun than if I just read, deny myself and take up my cross and I'm done now, right? That's the motivation for denying myself and take up my cross. I'm getting to him. Now, here's what God told me. It's in great big bold letters towards the end, of, at the end of the first page of your notes. Uh, this is really what he wants to communicate today. Uh, this is so important and amazingly so hard for us to get sometimes. And some, some people will even fight this and think it's not even biblical. Seriously. But it's, it's, it's right here. We must learn to enjoy him. We must 
learn to enjoy him. I'm telling you, it's very difficult to do Christianity long term if we're not learning to enjoy him. Amen. You will only toughen out for so long. We must learn to enjoy him. He wants us to learn to enjoy him because he wants to enjoy us. You believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? He wants us to learn to enjoy him because he wants to enjoy us. Now, there's one place where this is really clear that I want to show you. And uh, so I'm going to finish up here by reading some passages in Song of Solomon. And as soon as we're done, uh, had the band come up, we're going to go right back into worship. We can let the kids back in. Uh, not too quick, though, because we're going to Song of Solomon. And uh, <laughs> it's going to be kissing. Now, this book is poetic, but it's, uh, but it's and so it's symbolic, but it's, it's deep. What it's symbolizing is, is core issues of Christianity, of our relationship with God. So I really want you to pay attention to what this is saying. Uh, in, in Song of Solomon chapter 1, uh, the, the Shulamite, the bride who represents the church, us, is expressing right off the bat her desire for God. In chapter 4, the bridegroom or the king or uh, the beloved, God, expresses back. I want you to notice that he uses almost exactly the same language when he answers back. also want you to notice that uh, it took till chapter 4. So if you are expressing this desire and going, but I don't feel like I'm drinking from the rivers of his pleasure, well, maybe you're in chapter two or three. It's okay. Keep going. You'll get to chapter four. All right? So, and then in, at the end of chapter four, uh, she answers one more time with a great answer, which I'm going to really camp on. So I'm just going to talk you through this and explain some of the symbolism as we read it so you get what's going on here really want you to get this because this is the conversation that God wants to have with us. It starts in chapter 1. The church says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Now again, this is talking about, uh, like in Psalm 34, 8, we talked about last week about taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not enough just to be told he's good. I need to taste that he's good. I need to experience God's goodness. And so, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth is about experiences. It's about God, I, have to, I desire experiences with you. I desire not just to know things about you. I desire uh, for you to speak to me. I desire to be in your presence. I desire to have experiences with you. This is what these kisses represent. Okay? So let, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. I desire experiencing the living God. And then she goes on, she says, for your love is better than wine. Now, wine is an earthly pleasure. There's no other reason to drink wine. You can just, just as much out of water, you know, Diet Coke. Right? The whole purpose of drinking wine is because it's pleasurable. And he's saying, she's saying here, I am choosing your love over the pleasures of this earth. I'm saying that it's a surpassing pleasure. I need to experience your kisses. I need to experience your love because I need the surpassing pleasures. It's better than the pleasures of this earth, right? 
And then she says, because the fragrance, because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Uh, the fragrance speaks of the presence of God. Second Corinthians talks about how we diffuse the fragrance of the knowledge of the Lord wherever we go from being in his presence. So the fragrance is talking about her desire. I'm compelled by your fragrance. I am, I am, I am drawn to a desire for your presence. You getting all this? And so it ends with, uh, therefore the virgins love you. Draw me away. God, I'm thirsty for intimacy with you. You have to draw me away. You have to take me to where you are. You have to bring me into your presence. Have you guys expressed those things to God? Now, here's the really cool thing. Let's look at God's answer. In chapter 4, and I'm skipping through because there's a lot in chapter 4. You can read it all later. And I'm not even covering all the symbolism. Uh, in chapter 4, I want you to see how he responds with exactly the same language. He says, you were fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. That's how he sees us. Makes me think of Ephesians 5.27 where he says, where he's talking to husbands about loving their wives. And he says, by the way, I have a wife. It's the church. I'm preparing her to be a glorious bride without spot. That's where my sights are. Right? And so he's going, you are fair, my love. There is no spot in you. Come with me. We cry, draw me away. He goes, yes, come with me. You hear it? The exact same language. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes. He's talking about his heart's response to our desire. When you expressed your desire, it ravished my heart. Amen. Yes, come with me. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse? How much better than wine is your love? That wild, God's saying that back to us. God, your love is better than wine. Your love is, the pleasure, is better than the pleasure of this earth. And God says, your love is better than wine. I love your love more than the pleasures of this earth. Starting to sink in? So he's speaking of the pleasure he has in us. And then in the same way, she talked about uh, the fragrance and, the, and, and his presence. Uh, he says, and in the scent of your perfumes, then in all spices, our presence. Uh, Revelation talks about our prayers being uh, incense, a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Oh, I love your fragrance. I love when the fragrance of when you present yourself before me in prayer and worship. I love it. Ah, oh, that's better than wine. Better and. And the scent of your perfumes. And then he talks about her desire to experience him. Let me kiss you with the kisses of my mouth. He says, your lips, my spouse, drink as honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Yes, I want to kiss you. I want to engage you. I want to give you experiences with me. I want to respond to your desire to experience me. You seeing this? And the fragrance of your garments... Is like the fragrance of Lebanon. And then here we go. This is where it gets really exciting. Verse 12. I skipped ahead. He lists a few plants that she smelled like in the other two verses. He says, 
A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. And then in verse 15, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters. Garden enclosed. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians. What is First Corinthians? 3.16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Do you not know that you are a dwelling place for God? Do you not know that you are a resting place for him? Do you not know that you are a garden enclosed, a place where he can come and take pleasure? Starting to see it? You're a garden enclosed, my sister, my spouse. A fountain of gardens, a well of living water. Reminds me of what we just talked about in John 4, the woman at the well. A well of living water. If you thirst again, if you'll drink of other wells, but your desire to come to me makes you a well of living water, makes you uh, pleasurable. You'll never thirst. We'll have intimacy. You'll be my private garden. Is this making sense? Is this amazing? She says, uh, I want you. And he says, yes, you're a garden alone. I'm going to make you my secret garden, my dwelling place. I'm going to come and have pleasure in you. I'm going to come dwell in you and enjoy your love for me. I desire to respond to your desire. And then I love, my favorite part, Psalm 4, 16. It says, she hears his response, catch this. She has a revelation of his intense love for her, right? She's expressed her desire. He's expressed that his desire is just as intense. And she, all she can do is say, okay. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. And so her response is very simply, come into my garden, enjoy me. Come into your garden, enjoy me. Come into your garden, enjoy me. 